Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled Singing Songs and Open Hearts was given by Darren Roundson and is the 22nd in our series, The Kingdom. There's a story uh, in the Old Testament um, and it, it, it reveals this epic battle in 1 Kings chapter 18. And the story is uh, there's a, a battle between the God of Israel, Yahweh, and this false god named Baal. And a, a prophet of, of Yahweh, Elijah, confronts the rulers of Israel. And he says, uh, you can't have it both ways. You can't worship the God of Israel, Yahweh, and this false god, Baal. And he challenges them. And he says, why don't we duke it out? Let's see who God, whose God is real. And so he calls a battle and they go up to the top of a mountain. And 400 prophets of Baal show up for this battle. And then there's one prophet of Yahweh, Elijah. And Elijah kind of sets the, the, the terms and he says, all right, let's build an altar. Because you built altars for gods when you used to worship them in the past. You see, you built altars to offer your stuff over and over again. So they build this altar. He says, you can pick out the bull. The, the prophets of Baal pick out the bull they're going to sacrifice. And then they just see what's going to happen. Elijah says, you go first. And so the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, they begin to call out and they say, Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. And they start marching around the altar. And you could just see it, top of a mountain. It's probably cold. This, just, this altar with a, 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 um, a bull on it. And 400 prophets marching around, calling out at the top of their lungs, Oh, Baal, answer us. And <clears throat> time goes on. Hours pass, and it gets to noon, um, middle of the day. And Elijah's getting tired. He's waiting for this God to show up. Um, and it says um, in, in verse 26, there was no answer. There was no voice. The prophets of Baal, they limped around the altar. And at noon... Elijah begins to mock the prophets of Baal. In verse 27, he's, Elijah's just taunting them. He says, shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. And so what did the prophets do? It says in verse 28, so they shouted louder. And uh, they began to slash themselves with swords and spears, as it was their custom, verse 28 says that, as, as was their custom, until their blood flowed, midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying, O Baal, answer us, until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. And the story, this epic battle, is that Elijah ends up humbly praying to God, setting up an altar, and he has the prophets of Baal and servants pour a ton of water on the altar. Just, he's like, let's just make sure we know who's God. And God brings this fire and burns it up. Bring up the story because it's fascinating. There's a phrase that I want to highlight. You see the prophets of Baal, they, sh they were marching around the altar shouting, Oh Lord, or oh, oh Baal, answer us. And as was their custom, they cut themselves. As was their custom, they opened up their bodies and allowed blood to overflow 
because they were so desperate for an answer. And you see, what, what this demonstrates is a, what is known as primitive worship. In the, as far back as you can go, primitive cultures, they recognize something. They recognize thousands and thousands of years ago, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Indians, you can find it in every major ancient culture. You find that, that hunters and gatherers recognize that there was a power beyond them. And it started with them recognizing that they survived off of a plant. And the plant would grow. And it would grow, they noticed, over time by these cosmic powers. If it didn't rain, the plant didn't grow. If the sun didn't show, the plant didn't grow. And if the plant didn't grow, then they couldn't eat. And the animals that they would hunt wouldn't survive. And if it didn't rain, then there wouldn't be water to drink and they would die. And the animals that they hunted to eat and survive off of, that too would die. And they realized that there were cosmic powers operating and as far back as you can go, you can find that deep, deeply rooted in the human psyche was this concept of these powers that be having control over things that you did not have control over. And they've started bringing offerings and sacrifice and worship. They created rituals to worship the God of rain. Because when the God of rain didn't show up, some of these cultures personify them. They gave them personalities. They gave them names. They gave them um, specific ways of what they look like and why they didn't show up. They created myths around these stories, these false gods. But they, they would begin to offer their stuff. They would, they would bring a harvest from last year uh, because it was a good year. And they'd bring more this year because they wanted it better. But then, but then it wouldn't rain. And so they'd bring more. And everyone in the village had to do it. If, if not everyone was playing their part, they would call those people out. And what you realize built into these systems is in this primitive form of worship, you don't know where you stand with the powers that be. You don't know where you stand with the gods. And so you just bring everything. You bring more. And then you bring more. And then you bring more. And you do more. And you bring more. And more and more and more until you get to the point where you're so desperate for an answer that you begin to cut yourself. It's not just the prophets of Baal, but it's ancient cultures would practice this ritual. And it gets to the point where you would offer your firstborn to appease the gods, the powers that be, because you didn't know where you stood with those gods. This morning, I would like to simply talk about how Christianity today, most of us worship the God of the Bible in the most primitive form of worship we can. I would like to challenge the current thought that legalism disguises itself as a primitive form of worship and that Jesus has a full assault against anything like this. Because as Christians... We have a Bible that tells a great story. Not only do we know as Christians where we stand with the creator of the universe, but we know what he's done for us. We know what he thinks about us. We know what he calls us to. And yet we still worship today like the primitive ancient cultures. More and more and more and more and more. And so that's the introduction. Let's go to Mark chapter 7. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> My name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors. I missed you last week. I was at a wedding. I officiated. It was fun. 
Um, I have privileges in officiating wedding. I got free coffee. It was awesome. From Portland, Stumptown. Um, um, oh, you know, I didn't share this last um, service, but Mark 7, we're going to Mark 7. We, as a church, officially completed our first fiscal year. What does that mean? Well, last year, June 30th, we came off of uh, uh, about two-thirds of support from another church, Rock Harbor, and we, we attempted to be self-sustaining, and we did it, and we did it with flying colors because of your generosity. We gave 10% of everything we brought in away, and probably more than that. We're going to bring a review coming up this fall, but we launched uh, this new year, July 1st, looking at this next year, and we're stoked. I, I'm excited for what God has in store, so that's celebration. We are um, doing good, and we're going forward. That's a side note. Let's jump in, Mark 7. Uh, we've been going verse by verse, if you are new, verse by verse through the book of Mark. Um, we are defining the kingdom of God. We are looking at the primary message of Jesus Christ. What was the heart of his message? And why has, has for, ha, have we for so long missed the point? And so we're taking our time, going verse by verse, looking at this great narrative of what Jesus was about. Um, and so we, we've walked through his baptism, We've walked through him dining with sinners and and redefining what it means to be holy. We walk through the power of the kingdom and that he gives us that power here and now. Um, What does it mean to have the heart of Jesus? We looked at Jesus healing. We've looked at Jesus cleansing. We've looked at Jesus doing all these great things, casting out demons. Um, He fed 5,000 people with a couple loaves and some fish. Last week, he walked on water. And if you were here, um, you can podcast it if you weren't here. But Jesus is about to pass up his disciples walking on water. And Jesus wants to train his disciples to be okay with God walking by us. It's a whole other conversation. It was a great one. Bill did a great job teaching on that. Um, And we pick up in chapter 7. So let's read this together. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. And saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Here's Mark's commentary. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they, came, uh, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law ask Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Okay, pause there. Um, We, as this church goes, we want to really find out what does the text mean. And in order for us to understand what this means for us today, we have to do a lot of ancient studying. So Bill and I do a lot of research. We we go through commentaries. We go through different dictionaries. And we, we read as much as we can to find out the context. It's a, a great way of saying the word is exegesis. We want to know what the author intended this text to mean. And we want to know um, the different backgrounds, the context, the people, the characters, the themes. All of that stuff has to do with the way we interpret the text here on Sundays and in our own lives. And so there's a, there's a, a few things going on. First of all, there's something called the authorial intent. That's uh, what Mark is the author of the book of Mark. And he's writing with a very specific reason. He's writing to the church in Rome. These are men and women who have said yes to Jesus. They're like us. They're following Christ. And they're trying to figure out what does that mean for us today? It was about 30 years later from when uh, Jesus was alive. And what does that mean for us today? 
Um, the other thing that's going on is Mark is, is writing a narrative. So not only do we have to know what Mark is intending it to mean, we have to know what the story itself means. Does that make sense? So Mark's writing with commentaries. Those are the parentheses. Um, but he's also writing a, a narrative story about Jesus. So we're, we, we just read a couple of things. And I want to I pick those out and talk about some context. So first of all, there's a character that we've already been introduced. And that's, those are the Pharisees. We've talked about this before. We go back to Acts chapter 2. We're introduced to the Pharisees. The Pharisee, the word means separated ones or separate ones. Pharisees were religious elites. In the first century, they were Jewish people that, that lived according to the law. And they lived, to, lived the law down to a T. They were, they were adamant about obedience, about following the rules that God gave us. And they added more laws. But the, this, this type of group... Um, they, they defined holiness. They defined holiness by what they did and did not do in the law. So we read that the Pharisees get frustrated with Jesus because he's doing things like do, uh, healing on the Sabbath. And that was, that was a law that you could not break. They, they're doing things like, um, he's doing things like eating with sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees had created rules that said you could not eat with people that are known as sinners. In the Jewish society, that would make you unholy or unclean. He was doing things like touching lepers. You would never touch a leper. That would make you unclean. He, was, uh, he, he touched, a woman touched him who was, uh, who was menstruating for 12 years. That would have made him unclean. He uh, just fed 5,000 people and he didn't do the ceremonial washing. Okay, so these are all traditions that the Pharisees practiced. Okay, and so they're, fr- they're frustrated with Jesus and their paradigm and their worldview the way that the world works, they believe that if you, um, if you break these, these traditions, you are unholy. You're not religious or righteous. Are you with me? Those are the Pharisees. Now, the law comes from the Old Testament. We have the law of Moses. Now, we, re- we know that the Torah, the, the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, reveals what's called the law of Moses. In Exodus 20... Um, Moses brings the, the recently freed Israelites out of Egypt, goes up to the mountain and brings down the Ten Commandments. And he says, this is the written law. This is what God commands us to do. It's about ob- obeying the law. It's about following within these boundaries. But um, from Exodus to Deuteronomy, there's a total of 613 laws in the law of Moses. That is known as the written law. And, and in that, you see the heart of God. And we did a whole series on, on the Ten Commandments, and we re- revealed that the law wasn't intended to be bad. It was, revealed, it was used to reveal the heart and the spirit of God. Um, but what happened is over time, this happened around 1400 B.C., there was something called the Mishnah that was developed, the oral tradition. From 1400 B.C. on, there was uh, a season of scholars, of, of Pharisees, of rabbis, of religious leaders that began to interpret the 613 laws, and they tried to figure out all of the implications that that, those laws had in everyday life. So they began to figure out what does it mean to not um, break certain laws. And so the Mishnah, the oral tradition, was known as the fence around the law. It was what they, they, if you can imagine the, the heart of the law here, they built a fence, a pretty big fence, around the law of Moses, and they added like 1,500 new laws. That's pretty intense, right? And so the Pharisees, they were, they were adamant about following all of those laws. Strict obedience to those laws. And, and let me just give you an example. And what happened 
over time was that the center of gravity shifted from the law of Moses, from the words of life, from the Ten Commandments, that which was given by God. The center of gravity shifted there to the peripheral Mishnah, the oral traditions. Obedience was less about following the law of Moses and it became more about obeying the rules and regulations that, that spread back. Okay, let me give you an example. Um, Exodus 28. Uh, in the Ten Commandments, it says, Remember the Sabbath day, uh, day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work. It goes on and says all of that. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is, Hey guys, um, rest. Observe the Sabbath. Now, why is this so important? Just a side note. Um, for 400 years, the Israelites lived as slaves making bricks. They've, seven days a week, they made bricks. Their identity was based on what they did and what they br- produced. Does that sound familiar to anyone? So God had to, had to kick that slave out of the Israelites. And one of the ways he did that was by instituting the Sabbath. Sabbath was designed for the Israelites to say, we're made in the image of God. It's not what we do, it's who we are. Sabbath was designed for rest, but over time, as the center of gravity shifted from rest, it began to look more like more laws, more rituals, more stuff. Look at what they did with the Mishnah. There's something called the 39 categories, and they created 39 categories that had branches of other categories under each of those categories that would would direct you on what it meant not to rest, but what it meant not to work. And so you could just read plowing the earth, sowing, reaping, binding, go to the next one, uh, making two loops, definitely more work than one. And uh, we can, I mean, it just gives you writing two or more letters, keep going. There's just a, a massive list. You can look at this up online. I love this one. Um, uh, putting the finished touch on an object and transporting an object between the private domain and the public domain for, or for a distance of four cubits within the public domain. So, I mean, they get really specific and they began to define, define their relationship. They defined their obedience, their holiness, based on the, this outer fence, on this outer circle. Versus on fulfilling what it means to observe and rest in the presence of God. Are you with me? Do you like the context or is it just me? I love it. Um, good, I'm, I'm glad some of you like it. Okay, let's jump back in. Verse 6. So Jesus knows this about the Pharisees. He knows that they're obeying the oral tradition. He knows that they're, 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 they're observing their man-made traditions versus the law. And so he calls them out. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me or worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Uh, you have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to the human traditions. He continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer um, let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like this. Jesus 
calls them out. He calls them a hypocrite. First of all, the word hypocrite, we know it as saying one thing and doing another. It comes from a Greek word for an actor in a Greek play that plays his role without sincerity. The pretenders. They play their role without sincerity. Remember, the Pharisees are the teachers of the law. They're supposed to show all of us blind people how to live in the, in the knowledge of God and being chosen. But they've been missing it. And he calls them out, calls them hypocrites. Then he uses Isaiah to, 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 to wail against them. He says, guys, he uses Isaiah. This is written during a time when you did not want to be in Israel or you, you were later on exile. He says, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You've let go of the commands of God and you hold to your human traditions. <clears throat> and then he gives them an example of how they're doing this. He uses uh, the Ten Commandments. He says, hey, it says to honor your father and mother. Um, but what you guys do is something called Corbin. Corbin was an ancient practice. It was looked upon by the religious elite as something really, really good and highly spiritual. What someone can do in their lifetime was if they had property or, or stuff they could vow or will their property and stuff to the temple. And they would do that when they were alive. And if they did that when they were alive, they were exempt from using their property, their money, their resources to help their family members. The commandment is honor your father and mother. And how that plays itself out is in a society that doesn't have retirement homes, the children would take care of the father and mothers. They'd provide for them until they passed away. But in Corbin... It was a sneaky way that moved from the center of that commandment and went to, hey, I'm honoring God by giving my resources to the temple. But they neglected their family members. And so Jesus calls them out in a very specific way. He says, you have nullified the word of God. That's a harsh criticism. He's sarcastic. He's rude. He's calling out these quote-unquote religious leaders. And what they've done is they've made a mockery of God's commandments in the first place. And you see that um, what Jesus talks about, and I love this. I think if you want to know what, what legalism looks at, at, at just a very simple way, legalism is simply singing songs and not allowing your heart to be open to God. I'll call legalism as just the practice of singing songs and your heart's not open to God. But he goes on and he says, um, he moves away, he calls out the Pharisees, puts them in their place. And then he shifts their teaching. Their paradigm is that holiness, righteousness, the things that are good, they don't come from what you do. He's like, you've missed the heart of the law. You've, you've focused on these human traditions. You've missed the heart of what we're about, what God's about, and you're taking people astray. And he calls them out, and then he reinterprets, reinterprets what it means to be a, a chosen person. He says, um, listen to me, verse, seven, verse 14. Everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked because they didn't get what that meant, which is pretty simple. And he says, are you so dull? He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomach. And then out of their body. Listen, to, this is a parenthesis. Mark then adds a commentary and he says, In saying this, Jesus declares all foods clean. We'll come back to that. Um, and he went on, verse 20, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, 
out of a person's heart um, that evil comes. I'm sorry, let me read that over. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus reinterprets what has been the common paradigm for holiness. He, he says, guys, you've got it wrong. It's not what comes into you. It's not that some unclean person defiles you. It's not that if you eat something without washing your hands, that defiles you. It's not necessarily touching a leper, that defiles you. But you've missed the point. It's the stuff that comes from within us, from our hearts, the center of our will, that defiles us. It's not what you do that makes you unclean. It's what comes from within. The Pharisees define their cleanliness by what they touch, but Jesus defines cleanliness and holiness by the condition, conditions of our hearts. He redefines, reinterprets that. He reinterprets the purpose of the law in the first place. Um, he redefines what it means to be obedient to the law. Um, and, and, and guys, let's, let's just be honest. Let's, let's not pretend that most of us are very, uh, we're, we're like the Pharisees when it comes to this type of thing. It's much easier to practice religion than it is to worship the infinite God, isn't it? To define our relationship based on what we do for Him versus how we're called to be with Him. And what the Pharisees do is they define everything that's meant to be good and they define their religion, their practice by what they do. And, and, and let, me, let me give you an example of how, um, how God kind of flips this. So, so where the Pharisees say, um, what's an example? Uh, the Pharisees will say, okay, the, the, let's do this. Yeah, perfect. Um, one commandment says, don't kill each other, right? Pretty basic. Hey guys, we're, we're going to start this new community. Let's start with not killing each other. Awesome. Well, the Pharisees focus on what does that mean to not murder? So we, we don't cross that boundary. Jesus will come and what's known as the redemptive narrative. The redemptive narrative is it starts in Exodus with don't kill each other. And as, as the prophets go on and as Jesus comes, what does he interpret? What is his definition of that law? Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friend. It goes from don't murder to love like I've loved. Are you with me? Um, another thing, uh, let's pretend that I'm a marriage counselor. I do premaritals all the time. Uh, as a pastor, let's pretend I'm doing a premarital, okay? I'm sitting down, couple, and they're wanting great advice from a guy that's been married for four years. And um, uh, so I give them all the best stuff, tell them what not to do. No, but I say to them, okay, guys, you know, here's what it says. Success of marriage, don't commit adultery. Have fun. See you later. And... Um, legalism would begin to define what adultery is, right? Well, it's not this, it's not that. Legalism will begin to build a fence around adultery. But the heart of law, the kingdom, what Jesus does is he begins to redefine what the heart of the law is. 
And if you see the redemptive narrative, what happens? Well, Ephesians comes around. And it's not don't just commit adultery. It's husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Gave himself up for her. The message will say every word he says evokes her beauty. Peter will say, husbands, treat your wives in a way that doesn't hinder your prayers. Now, how does it go from don't commit adultery to love like Christ loves the church? Jesus redefines the spirit of the law. You see, we're much more comfortable with legalism. And here's the truth. Let's put that list up real fast. Jesus says, out of the heart comes sexual immorality, theft, murder. Go to the next one. Adultery, greed, malice, deceit. There's some definitions. Lewdness, slander, arrogance, folly, just to name a few. Out of the heart comes sinful nature, behavior, thoughts. And Christianity has made us believe as Christians that the goal of life is to manage that list. The goal of life is to deal with that sin stuff, to deal with that, that list of, of all the things we've done wrong, to become experts at not breaking those barriers down. I mean, how does, how does this work? Well, well, you know, it's very easy to see that we could say, um, hey, uh, you know, I've heard Christian churches say, well, being a Christian is about not seeing dirty movies and not cussing or drinking or smoking, not doing those things. What did we do? We've defined Christianity by what we do or don't do. We've built a fence around our behaviors. Like, for example, lust. Let's talk about lust for a second. 93% of men have struggled with pornography. Statistic. Truth. In Christian churches. So we're not alone. Men. Women. I think it's like two-thirds of women struggle with it. Let's say we see this word, sexual immorality. Lust pops up. What happens when we first experience something where the church says, this is bad? Well, we, we try to change. We try to change that behavior. We start with accountability software, right? You don't have to agree with me. I'm just going to tell you what I've, I've heard lots of people do. It starts with accountability software. I can't go on certain internet sites. If I do, it sends an email to my accountability partners. Then it's one step further, my accountability partners. All of a sudden, I have three people checking emails every, uh, once a week, letting them know what sites I've seen. But then we meet once a week, and what does that meeting look like? Oh, guys, stumbled four times this week. You're forgiven. Go and sin no more. Next week happens, you're forgiven, go and sin no more. And then you realize one of your friends, he struggles with the same thing. So now he needs accountability. And so you've built this whole thing around this accountability group. You've built your whole accountability based on not sinning. And then it goes even further. Hey, I can't have a computer in my bedroom. Roommates, hold me accountable. I can't have internet at my home. I can't actually have internet on my phone because it's that bad. Then I have a girlfriend. And because I'm dealing with behavior and building this fence and I'm not dealing with the heart, I begin to deal with boundaries. And what does that look like? Well, God, hey, babe, we can't kiss for more than 30 minutes. Hey, I see you laughing. I, I have this list, by the way. I'm not the only one, probably. Hey, we, and then it's like, okay, we can't kiss for 10 minutes. We can't lay on a couch together. We can't be alone past 6 p.m. We can't, you know, we can't hold hands. I don't know where it goes. It, it just keeps going further and further and further away. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like more and more and more 
and more and more and more. It sounds a lot like primitive worship, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like we don't know exactly where we stand with the God of the Bible. All we know how to do is just give more and more and do more and do more and do more until we're in a frantic frenzy and we're exhausted and there's no change. Because Christianity has taught us to do with the list, we haven't been taught to come to a God who loves us, to a God that desperately wants to know us and simply stand in his humble presence, looking up at him with no shame because there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ and say, God, I'm lustful. I'm easily angered. I have a terrible marriage. I, I struggle with XYZ, greed, consumerism, individualism that makes everything about me, pride. Just mark it on the list and simply say, God, that's me. We haven't taught people how to stand in the presence of God and be who we are without feeling a sense of guilt and shame and immediately jumping into repentance because that has everything to do with us, right? How many of us have allowed our relationship with God to be defined by our disciplines, by our actions, by what we do? Imagine if someone asked me, hey, Darren, how do you love Alex, my wife? How do you love her? Well, what if I was like, well, obviously I love her. I'd take out the garbage. I'd do dishes. I'd do a date night once a week. It's scheduled. It's in the planner. It's there. I'm awesome at being a husband. But if someone asked me, how do you, how do you know you love her? Well, I would say with probably, well, my heart still skips a beat when she comes into the room. I don't feel myself without her. That if she's sick and she asks for yogurt land and I go to one I'll, and they don't have her topping, I'll go to the other one just, just to get her what she wants. That when I have a terrible day, the first person I think of telling or calling is her. And when it's really bad, all I want to do is sit and be alone and be hugged by her. That I know I love her because I can't imagine life without her in it. How many of us have that with Jesus? How many of us have that relationship with a God who has clearly said that the sin's not really the issue anymore? He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. How many of us are living where we can stand in the presence of God unashamed. Worthy. Not because of what the Bible study we went to, not because of Sunday morning, not because we set up chairs, or because we gave that month, but because all we know is that when it comes to the God of the universe, we know exactly where we stand. We know exactly what He thinks. It has nothing to do with what we can do but everything to do with us receiving his love in our hearts.
thing Christianity has created. What has been going on all along. Primitive worship. Simple legalism. Some of you stand here this morning. You sit here. And you are overwhelmed with lust, with anger, with broken marriages, with past marriages, with hatred, with bitterness, with pride, with consumerism, greed, gluttony, laziness. We stand here with a list that has been put in front. And when we think about coming to church, we, we, we put on the suit and tie and we smile knowing very well that we never feel worthy. This morning, I just want to do this. Can we just take off the suit and tie? Can we take off the pretty smile? Can we let go of the list of the things that make us unworthy and recognize that the God we love, the God that loves us first, the God that we know, the God of the Bible is a God that says there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, that you are righteous, that you are holy, that you are beloved, that your life is hidden with Christ, that you are called to be a participant in the kingdom here and now, and whatever you think you've done that keeps you away, it doesn't matter. He loves you as you are and not as you should be, period. And if you worship any other God, then you're worshiping an idol. Religion will give you rules. The kingdom of God gives us Jesus. Religion says, hey, wash your hands. Jesus says, bring to me your dirt. The kingdom is a power that welcomes in the worst of the worst, the least, the last, the lost, the broken, the ill, the addicted, the corrupted, the lazy, the complacent, the average, the below average, the easily angered, the self-righteous, and even those legalistic out there. And it transforms those types of people to be the, the kinds of people that are full, that are whole, that are empowered, that are healed, that are released here and now in the midst of all of that stuff to be used by God for his kingdom. That's what it means as we define the kingdom in this chapter. That's what it looks like. It's not about your resume. It's about what he says. It's about opening your heart. I'm going to call Pete forward. Um, yeah. This is good. You, you know what this means for me? I think, uh, well, first of all, Jesus doesn't know how to deal with your computer software or your rules. He doesn't know how to deal with your accountability group. He only knows how to deal with you as you are. That's the only way he can deal with it. And so where do we begin? We begin by simply saying, God, I'm a mess. And he says, I know. And you're holy. And I love you. And I'm going to use you. You're righteous. So it starts by simply opening ourselves up to God. So this morning, some of you see the list and you're like, dang it, I'm found. I was. I don't even, I, I, I want to do something dangerous. I, I don't want 
this morning to look like repentance. Because that would involve you doing. That, that happens. That's very, that's very close to next. But what comes first is you standing in the presence of a loving Father who says you are worthy. Be still and know. You can't be a disciple of Jesus unless you let him wash your feet. Some of you, you shouldn't stand because that's an act of doing. Others of you, you need to stand and soak in the worship and allow God to speak over you his words. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we give you our response. Please, Lord, help us to not make our response about us. But let's make it about you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your words of life. Thank you for showing us how to be, not telling us how to do. We give it to you in your name. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear other messages from the garden, or if you would like to find out more about the garden church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org.